Welcome back to the PFC podcast. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else. Now on to the podcast. Welcome back to the PFC podcast. This is Dennis. And today I am with my favorite ICU doc. How are you doing, Doug? I'm great, Dennis. Thanks for having me on. Um, so uh, the reason I asked you on, uh, one, you work in a cardiothoracic ICU, so you know the heart and lungs very well. And uh, my main question that I would like to go over is traumatic cardiac arrest. And I see a lot of guys getting confused between medical cardiac arrest and traumatic cardiac arrest in that somebody that a patient who has obvious trauma and has now um, lost vital signs by um, whatever mechanism um, that's recognized because he's lost carotid pulses, let's say, um, they immediately start going into their medical ACLS algorithm as far as chest compressions and somebody scrambling for epi and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me why that's going to help somebody. Right, right. Um, so, so, I mean, if you wouldn't mind, um, kind of at least start, let's kind of frame the problem with, with traumatic cardiac arrest. Like, what different types of traumatic cardiac arrest could there be? Right. Well, as we were um, kind of talking about before we started recording, um, traumatic cardiac arrest really falls into two main categories. Um, one is injuries outside of the heart that don't involve the heart and its structures um, that cause um, a cardiac arrest. And that's probably uh, in our population, the more common, right? Um, you lose a lot of blood and you don't have enough preload to fill your left ventricle to circulate blood. Um, and, you know, you lose your blood pressure and then you don't have enough pressure to perfuse the heart with blood that it needs to beat and the heart stops. Um, or you have an injury to a structure around the heart, like um, the lung, uh, that causes uh, a pneumothorax and then a tension pneumothorax or hemothorax that compresses the heart from outside Again, it doesn't fill with blood. It doesn't circulate blood. It doesn't get enough blood to the organ and the heart stops. Um, so those are kind of, you know, the most common causes of cardiac arrest in a trauma patient, which is trauma um, outside of the heart. Um, and then the second category, which is less common, um, but, you know, we had a, um, uh, a very... Um, a graphic example of it recently with the injury to the Buffalo Bills player on Monday Night Football, uh, where you get a traumatic injury to the heart itself um, that causes the heart to stop working. Um, and in his case, that was probably an injury to the electrical conducting system uh, that caused him to go into a uh, lethal arrhythmia because um, the conducting system was disrupted by the force of the blow, um, or you have a traumatic injury to the, uh, to the heart, either muscle itself, uh, for example, um, a uh, disruption of the left ventricle, uh, a hole in the left ventricle, um, 
or a traumatic rupture of one of the valves, uh, usually the mitral valve or the aortic valve, uh, or a um, traumatic aortic dissection, um, which can cause a, a traumatic, which can cause an associated aortic valve failure, uh, as well as hemopericardium in and tamponade due to hemopericardium. Um, so those are kind of the two big categories, and then I, I threw in, you know, some sort of subcategory mechanisms of, of injury. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, at this point, kind of in the in the scenario, if there were were one, we know that he's dead. We need to try and make him undead, but a lot of things need to happen really, really rapidly because the longer you wait, the more less likely it is that you're going to be able to bring him back. So what what are the, I guess, important things that need to get done right away? You don't know what the mechanism is. Um, hopefully there, there should be at least some suspicion of mechanism, right? Massive hemorrhage, you know, hopefully you have some indication that there's a massive hemorrhage, right? Um, there's either a penetrating injury and a lot of blood on the ground. There's an, uh, an extremity injury. There's an amputation with a lot of blood on the ground or, you know, a, a bullet wound to an artery that's spurting. Um, in in that case, uh, you know, uh, um, actually, or blunt force trauma and you do a, a quick EFAST exam and, and you see quite a bit of, uh, of blood on your EFAST exam. Um, and I, what I'll probably do is, is just take these individually. Sure. Um, and, you know, and in that case, um, you know, your algorithm is um, look for bleeding and treat bleeding right away with, um, with, with, um, whole blood ideally. Um, and it's okay to start CPR in that case, um, because the heart isn't working. Heart isn't working in that case. Um, and helping it to work with CPR can help your resuscitation be more effective. Um, And in general, you know, your CPR will probably be pretty short, you know, one or two rounds of CPR, the heart fills with blood. It starts getting blood supply. It starts beating on its own. Oh, okay. Um, And uh, what was I going to say? Um, so that's that's sort of one etiology, and in your EFAST, then um, if you suspect chest trauma, you know you could diagnose a um, uh, pneumothorax with your sliding lung exam and with your M mode, looking for the seashore sign. And if you see a um, pneumothorax and they're in cardiac arrest, then you have to assume it's a tension pneumothorax and, you know, needle D that right away uh, and ideally get a chest tube or finger thoracostomy in right away. Um, uh, Especially if on your EFAST exam, you see fluid around the lung where you have to suspect that that's a a traumatic hemothorax that's causing um, the tension. Um, The needle D probably isn't going to decompress that. You have to get a finger in there, get some blood out, um, and then a chest tube. So, 
um, I don't want to go on a sidebar, but just a, just a thought. Um, should our go-to in that situation be finger thoracotomy? I would say so. Um, well, if you see blood on your fast exam, if you see clear fluid, you know, a, a black stripe around the lung, then yes. If you don't, you could, a needle D would be okay. Okay. And, and let the, let the presence of, of, uh, you know, a positive E fast in the lung, um, be your decision point. If you have a positive E fast in the lung, um, then yes, go straight to a finger thoracotomy, um, uh, thoracostomy don't, don't do a needle D cause it's not going to be effective. You're not going to get blood out from that. And the blood is probably more dependent, you know, lower down in the lung than, than where you would put a needle D in. If you don't, um, then I think a needle D is worth a try. Okay. Okay. Um, so other than, you know, obviously exsanguination, um, and tension pneumo tension hemo, what other what other things do I need to look for? Uh, well, certainly um, a pericardial effusion. Also, you know, positive E fast with blood with with fluid around the heart. Um, you know, getting a needle into that uh, and getting that out is a lot more committing. Um, but you know, it's it's definitely something you need to do. Um, you can do it with ultrasound guidance. You know, you can keep that probe in the subcostal in the subxiphoid space. Um, and watch your needle go into the fluid. That's probably your best way of getting the needle where it needs to be um, and missing, you know, vital structures like the liver and causing a liver injury. Um, and then short of that, you know, um, then you kind of get into another flavor where maybe you don't suspect bleeding or you don't have a mechanism for bleeding and what kind of injuries would cause that. And that's basically blunt force trauma to the chest, right? So um, you have a motor vehicle incident where, you know, the patient has, you know, hit a handlebar. If they're on their um, ATV handlebar twisted and the butt of the handlebar goes right into the left chest wall the steering wheel goes to the left chest wall. You should see a contusion there pretty quickly. Um, although depending on skin pigmentation, you may not, but, um, you at least have the mechanism of, a, of a motor vehicle accident, um, potentially ejection. Uh, in that case, um, you know, a quick fast exam just to rule out blood, and then if you have it, some way to get a tracing of the cardiac rhythm, you know, a one lead, a three lead, you know, tele you know, monitor, which I realize, you know, if, if you're far, far forward and you're, you're really in the ruck phase of PFC, you're not going to have. But if you're in the truck, the house, you know, the plane phase, uh, maybe you would, um, and then um, you you want to look to rule in or rule out um, a tra traumatic disruption of the electrical conducting system that has sent the patient into ventricular fibrillation. Um, and if that's the case, you know CPR is definitely the right thing to do if you can see V-fib. Um, or if you can't see bleeding and you have that mechanism, um, CPR is the right thing to do because you have to at least give a shot at resuscitating, you know, V-fib. Uh, yeah. 
the you know the gold standard for resuscitating VFib is defibrillation, uh, which I realize if you don't have a lead, um, you know you probably don't have a defibrillator. Um, but CPR and epi is better than nothing, um, and the epi can sometimes help restore the rhythm. Um, and then beyond that, um, if you do have a traumatic injury to one of the structures of the heart, um, and you don't have a cardiac surgeon, it's probably a non-survivable injury. Um, right. you know, in the ICU where I work, um, aortic, dis- you know, uh, ascending aortic dissections, left ventricular free wall ruptures, which can happen after a big heart attack, especially when it is a late, pre- late presentation of a big heart attack. Um, or, um, we call it wide open aortic, uh, insufficiency or mitral regurgitation where the valve is just stuck open, uh, and, and it's not closing at all. Those are all surgical emergencies. Okay. So, and we generally try to get those patients on the operating room table and within, you know, no more than two hours. Okay. So you just do CPR and, and, or some kind of pacing or defibrillation until Open up an an OR. Yeah, I think honestly, in this in this situation, uh, unless you're like just outside a role two uh, with surgical capabilities, uh, again, um, you're not you're not going to be able to um, keep them alive uh, long enough. Right. So, okay. Um, does what about airway? Um, I'm guessing you know a lot of what we talked about is you know getting blood on board as rapidly as possible decompressing the chest or the pericardium if necessary. Um, you know, I imagine you're going to need to take their airway and somebody's going to need to start uh, bagging for this patient. Yeah, it's an important thing to do. It doesn't need to be the first thing you, you do. Um, you know, typically, you know, even in, you know, ACLS resuscitations of heart attacks or, or PEA arrest in the hospital, you know, we often go you know, from the initial resuscitation all the way to the ICU, just with mask ventilation, we like to get an okay. air, we we like to get an airway in soon, um, but mask ventilation for sure, uh, okay. and in an airway when you can. But um, you, you know, it's much more important to prioritize the things that could help the heart to get blood supply to help the heart perfuse itself. Um, so blood on board. Um, pneumothorax decompressed, hemothorax decompressed, um, ventricular fibrillation shocked back to a normal rhythm or back in a normal rhythm with CPR and epi uh, than it is to get an airway. Okay. Um, you know, if there was if there was something that uh, I don't know you could change about how people kind of react to this to uh, traumatic cardiac arrest, uh, what well, I guess what would be your first thing? Or what would you want people to do immediately? I think it's probably the same thing that you want them to do as an instructor, which is, you know, take a millisecond to ask yourself why, right? Why is this person pulseless? Um, Before you dive all your resources and focus into CPR. Um, That would be the first thing I would change because um, if the answer if the answer to that question, why is, you know, hemorrhagic shock, you really need to devote most of your resources to getting blood on board. Um, 
if it's a pneumothorax, it's, you know, to decompressing the pneumothorax. Um, and then following right behind that thing, I would ask people to prioritize and maybe do differently depending on what you see them do, you know, in the classroom and on the lanes is, um, allocate your resources, um, so that not everybody is focused, um, just on one thing. And the best resources to allocate to CPR are not the medic or not the medical provider, right? That's the person who should be stepping back, trying to think clearly about the why, um, and, um, and then, you know, um, directing the resources, you know, your team should be able to do CPR while they're doing CPR. You can be doing the fast exam. You can be, you know, um, in fact, get directing the walking blood bank to get blood in or telling the team to get blood from your supplies, uh, and not doing that yourself. Um, I have, been a code leader in more, you know, more codes that I can count. Um, and in a handful of them, I've had to do something, usually put an airway in, sometimes put a central line in. As soon as you focus on a task, you lose oversight of the whole situation and you miss stuff. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. You know, guys, Forget like there, you can make only so many decisions in a in a given period of time, and if they're spent on what kind of IV should I do, what kind of sternal IO should I do, you know where exactly is the the correct spot to decompress the chest, whatever these small things are, none of the things you've said so far, besides you know pericardial synthesis, is beyond T tri C basic T tri C. Correct. Correct. And I don't know, you know, how you train that and how you assess that, you know, in, in, in various phases of, of medic training, you know, I realize that a lot of assessment is, you know, just the medic, Hey, how are you going to get through this situation? But if you, if you have that situation that you're assessing them for and you set the lane up and say, Hey, you've got these guys standing around as your team, you know, whether it's another instructor, whether it's guys waiting to assess, whether it's yourself as, as an assessor, um, you know, you've got, you've got these two guys, three guys, four guys, um, you know, you can use them if you think you need them. I, I don't know, you know, I, I, I don't want to step in and tell you how to assess medics, but as yeah. you know, as an operational surgeon, you know, when I was training teams, you know, pre-mission and we were running these scenarios, absolutely, we would make sure the team is cross-trained and um, the medic knew that um, they were available to help. And the medic knew that it was a standard that he employ them to help and do everything possible um, to do and save, you know, save the task for the medic is the task that only the medic can do. And like you said, pericardiocentesis is probably a, maybe a finger thoracostomy, probably a finger thoracostomy sure. as well. Right. Um, but you know, your team can mask ventilate, your team can do CPR, your team can start an IV, your team can get the blood from the, you know, the, the cooler or the bag and start that, or, you know, start a walking blood bank um, and keep the medic up and out seeing the whole field and not down and in missing stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I see that very, very frequently. Um, 
we in our course, you know, we get, you know, six, eight medics together as a team. And, you know, each day somebody else is in charge. Right. And usually where I see the plans fail is because they never made an actual plan about who's in charge. Right. You know, guys kind of gather together and like, yes, we're all medics. And uh, once everybody recognizes that, then we go about talking about our weekend or whatever else. Then they receive a patient and chaos just ensues and essentially very little gets done. You know, and in the ICU, we recognize that potential um, risk. And um, at the start of every shift, uh, we get something called an assignment sheet. Uh, and it's got, you know, all the patients, all the nurses that are assigned to them, the doctors, the PAs, the nurse practitioners, respiratory therapists, and the assistants. Um, but at the very top, it talks about um, code roles. So um, of all of those nurses and, and medical assistants, um, you know, people are assigned to do chest compressions. Um, people are assigned to do um, medications and, and, and someone is assigned to be the recorder. Um, and when the nurses, you know, when the team comes on um, for their shift, they, they have a huddle before they come on and those roles are, um, are, are laid out and verified and everybody, you know, looks the charge nurse in the eye and says, yep, got it in a code. I'm on compressions in a code. I'm on drugs. And so when it happens, cause you never know when it's going to happen. Right? Uh, right. And, and, and seconds are important, you know, and to eliminate those seconds or sometimes even minutes, by figuring out who's in charge and who's on all these very, very important um, tasks uh, could be the difference between saving somebody's life and not. Yeah. You know, and I mean, when we, when we finally do an AR and explain it, like you know, put this guy in charge of the airway, well, that kind of gives him implied task of finding all his airway gear and making sure all his airway stuff is working and where's his suction and, all the little components to it so that he can do his job. Yeah. You know, um, but uh, if you're doing everything on the fly, then you're not giving those people opportunity to, you know, find the crash cart, make sure that the crash cart is stocked properly. Um, things like that. Yeah, exactly. Well, that was nice and short. <laughs> it was, it was, but, uh, thanks. I mean, I think, I, I think we covered everything, uh, yeah. and you know, we got into even more importantly, um, some reprioritizations that people may need to do when they do have a patient who's pulseless, um, in terms of, um, asking why, um, delegating roles and responsibilities, ideally having pre-delegated roles and responsibilities and let the most experienced provider be the person who's answering the question why and making sure that things to intervene on that are, um, are done correctly. Uh, and then also reassessing if those interventions aren't working, you know, maybe I have the wrong why, or maybe there's another why. Right. Or maybe there's two, right? Right. Right. So, but um, no, I think we went through a pretty logical kind of order, you know, immediate priorities are going to be trying to, one, the medical providers trying to figure out why, getting some kind of access, assess if this is some kind of reversible cause. Right. Because if it's, you know, 
direct damage to the heart because a bullet went through it, you probably should just go ahead and stop, right? Right. Yeah. Or your free wall ruptured when your chest hit the steering wheel at 60 miles an hour and you were unrestrained. Right. So. Right. So. Well, very good. Hey, thank you, Doug. Always good to always good to be on, Dennis. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. For today's podcast, be sure to go to our website, www.prolongfieldcare.org. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Subscribe and stay on the bleeding edge of combat medicine. This is Dennis for the PFC Podcast. Our boy is waiting there for you.